Good morning, everybody. Or almost, actually, it's almost good afternoon. It's kind of crazy. All righty. This morning we're in Acts chapter 11. So go ahead and turn there as we get rolling here this morning. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Excuse me. In the past few months of our study of Acts, we have seen the work of Jesus continuing on in the life of his followers, who are now fueled by the Spirit. Some of the early highlights in this narrative by Luke is that the gospel has spread all through Jerusalem and Judea. The pages have also recorded the wonders that his disciples have performed. The pages also have the accounts, the beginnings of the early church. We have also seen this early church demonstrate generosity and resiliency as it continues to flourish despite the persecution that it faces. In the last few weeks, we have seen that the Word of God continues its triumph and that the previously unthinkable has happened. And those who had been least expected to be saved and shown grace have actually been welcomed into the family of God. We have the dramatic conversions of the Samaritans, the Ethiopian, the lead persecutor of the church, and a Roman soldier last week. And all these people have come to believe in the beautiful, glorious truth of the gospel. And the triumph of the word of God culminates today in a very pivotal moment of the early church. And that's the founding of the local church in the city of Antioch. The founding of the local church in Antioch is important because it comes to a base from which the Apostle Paul operates out of for his missionary journeys as he proclaims the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts. Before we go on any further about Antioch, let's, let's read the passage together. So we're in Acts 11. Again, we're in verses 19 to 30. I'll start reading in 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And, so, and they did so, 
sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what is it that Luke is trying to get the reader to understand? And I would say that the main idea that holds all these verses together is that the triumph of the Word of God results in the founding of a multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, and magnanimous local body of Christians. And yes, I did use another M word there, magnanimous, and I used a thesaurus. We'll talk about that a little later, though. Let's consider the first part. Turn your eyes to verses 19 and 20. In these verses, Luke is setting the scene up by tying what is happening here in 11 to the happenings of chapter 7 and 8. If you recall, Stephen is killed and the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. By God's grace, the church doesn't diminish or, or fail. The church grows. Now the spread of Christians is continuing as a part of this persecution. They've gone past the regions of Judea and Samaria and continue northwards towards what we would know today as Turkey. There will be a map right up here behind us. If you see in the lower right-hand corner, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that's where most of our narrative has been taking place. And now the gospel is moving northwards to Antioch. We read that those who are scattered throughout this region went on with preaching the gospel. But apparently they missed the news, they missed the Facebook post about the conversion of the Roman centurion and the Ethiopian eunuch. So all they were doing was actually still preaching to Jews. In all actuality, the news just simply might have reached those in Asia Minor, or it's possible that even the events in 19 to 30 are happening concurrently with what is uh, recorded early on in Acts chapter 11, the conversion of Cornelius. And remember that Luke is giving us an orderly account of what is happening, but not a strict timeline. And ultimately, we don't have all these fine details of the dates and when all these things happen, how they all fit together. But what we do know is that some of those who are scattered, specifically men originally from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they have been so impacted by the gospel by the fact that Jesus died and rose again, by the fact that their sins were atoned for, by the fact that they had been given life, they could not help but to tell everyone they encountered. And for these men, the rules and traditions that we have mentioned in prior weeks, none of those mattered upon their arrival to Antioch. They preached the gospel broadly to everyone, and some commentators have called these men mavericks, but those with daring spirits, because never before had there been the widespread proclamation of the gospel to Gentiles. Samaritans, as Brandon mentioned last week, were considered cousins in a sense, and both Cornelius and and the eunuch are described as knowing God. But this is something new. The people in Antioch who are now hearing the gospel message would have had no context for the gospel. It is as if Luke is saying that, yes, the gospel is for everyone. And when I say everyone, I literally mean everyone, including those who have no concept of Judaism. And if you've been following closely in your text, you might be like, whoa, 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 one second here, all right? You see see the term Hellenist. 
And for some of you, this is a familiar term. And in prior chapters, yes, we have seen this term, Hellenist. And it was used in reference to Greek-speaking Jews. But in the context of this passage here today, it's used in reference to Greeks, especially when we tie it back into the context of verse 18. If this is sort of confusing, what do you mean like Greek-speaking Jews and just Gentiles and they're Hellenists and they're Greek? All right, Greek is the common language here. And we could use the term Hellenist to describe everybody who speaks Greek. In the same way, you and I have different backgrounds. My family's from Hong Kong, all right? I don't think anybody else has, you know, roots in Hong Kong. But yet, we're both Arizonans, okay? And that's how the term is being used here for Hellenists. Broadly, just Greeks, especially Gentiles. We can look at the historical context of Antioch and understand that Hellenist is likely referring to just broadly Greeks or just Gentiles, when we use it that way. We know that because Antioch is a super diverse city. It's the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world with more than 500,000 people. The city was a major crossroads, and in addition to Jews being there, there were Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, and Asians there. In the words of the famous preacher John Stott, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the first venue for an international church or as the springboard for worldwide Christian mission. No more perfect the place that we could imagine. And this is the place where the church is growing. And this is the place that the gospel has broken a major cultural barrier not only is it a gospel for Jews, but it has reached all the Greek-speaking population of Antioch. Luke is showing us here, he's indicating, this is the cherry on top of all the accounts that we have seen the last few weeks of Gentiles being included into the kingdom of God. And that a multi-ethnic body of believers was being built here. We see in the sovereignty of God, these ethnic barriers being erased, the gospel spreading, the church growing. And if there was any doubts in anyone's mind about what was happening here, Luke corrects that in verse 21. Verse 21 says, The hand of God was indeed with them. And many believed, and they repented, turning away from their prior ways and turning to the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment as we consider the happenings here in relation to us today. If you notice, there were no apostles. There weren't even the proto-deacons of the church leading this charge here in Antioch. And much like we saw in chapter 8, the ones leading the evangelistic charge are not those in positions of leadership, nor are they ones with full resumes of qualifications. Rather, the ones who helped plant the local body here in Antioch are unnamed mavericks. Ones who simply could not keep the good news that Jesus is Lord to themselves. We certainly can think about the ethnic or racial implications of this again. Let's keep it simple. Friends, have we been mindful in preaching the gospel to ourselves lately? Or have we in 2020, in the midst of pandemic and protest, 
and listening to the narrative of the world? Have we reflected and meditated on the beautiful news that Christ died for our sins? Have we reflected on the fact that for those who have repented and believed, God welcomes us into his family and given us a promise of eternal life? Have we reflected on the truth that even as everything around us gives way, God is our ultimate hope and stay? Why do I ask this? For the men of Cyrene and Cyprus, the rules, traditions, and expectations couldn't keep the gospel stuffed away. Neither could the persecution. Instead, broadcast the gospel to all people. And as we kind of reflect on this just a little bit more, I want to read a quote from the preacher Charles Spurgeon. Help us think about this. Quote, Once more, he who really has this high estimate of Jesus will think much of him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. Do we so? If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. And every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. So who are we? I pray that we are not imposters, that we would cultivate a love for Christ, a trust and a sure hope that we cannot but to help but tell our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, the international, the American, and even those protesting in the street. And this is how a multi-ethnic church is built. Through the witness of common Joe Schmoes like you and I, simply sharing the good news that we cannot contain. And may we be like Peter and John before the council in Acts 4.20, when they say, for we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. As we move on to the next part of this passage, verses 22 to 24, we see that the news of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles has hit the ears of those in the church in Jerusalem. So much like with the spread of the gospel to the Samaritans, the central hub, the Jerusalem church, sends out a representative to check things out. We have seen previously with the news of Cornelius that there are those who might be skeptical probably of what was happening. But there are those who are also likely ready to help and to encourage. One of those in that latter group included Barnabas. If you recall... We have already been introduced to Barnabas in chapter 4. He's known as Joseph from Cyprus. But the apostles have given him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In that same chapter, we read of him selling his field and giving the proceeds to the church. And then later on in chapter 9, as Saul is introduced to the apostles, Barnabas is there vouching for Saul. Now we see him here in Acts chapter 11. And Luke adds to the description of Barnabas by saying he is a good man, 
full of faith, full of the Spirit. How often does the Bible speak of somebody being good? That's pretty amazing. What a guy, right? And who would be a better candidate than Barnabas to go visit a new group of believers? So Barnabas ventures off into Antioch and he arrives and he confirms indeed that the hand of the Lord is with all those in Antioch. Those here in Antioch aren't following a false gospel, nor is there anything suspicious happening. Rather, he's able to verify that indeed the grace of God was of all those there, Gentiles included. After witnessing the grace of God there in Antioch, he lives up to his namesake and he encourages them persevere in their mission. He tells them to stay steadfast in the mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples. And by the grace of God, this multi-ethnic local body here in Antioch multiplied. We read here at the end of verse 24, a statement that's similar to others in Acts. A great many people were added to the Lord. But right after we read that many were saved, we see there's a transition in 25, and it says, so Barnabas. And this so Barnabas is meaning as a result of the growth, Barnabas goes to look for Saul. It would have been easy for Barnabas to have kept to himself, to become the guy, could have tried to undertake this budding group of Christians under his own leadership, Maybe take the credit for himself, climb the corporate ladder. But true to his character, he seeks out a man who is a great teacher in order to best serve those in Antioch. And that's Saul. And the last we heard from Saul was in chapter 9, when the brothers helped send him back home to Tarsus, where he is continuing his ministry. And after some searching, Barnabas finds Saul, someone who he knows and trusts, and he brings him to Antioch, where they both teach a great many people for an entire year. If you notice here, this multiplying, multi-ethnic body of believers is now maturing. And Luke here specifically calls them not a random ragtag group of believers who so happen to receive the gospel. He calls them the church. The believers here in Antioch are no longer simply new disciples floating around. They're all now gathering together regularly to learn from Barnabas and Saul. Isn't it wonderful to think about this group of people? Probably would not have any reason to interact with each other. But yet, they were all saved by grace through faith in the gospel. They're now all uniting together under the same teaching that we have today written for us in the Bible. It's pretty amazing. As we think about the church here, devoting themselves to the instruction of the Word, our minds should be recalling what we saw in Acts chapter 2, where the church in the early days devoted themselves to prayer, breaking of bread, and the teaching of the apostles. The emphasis on teaching continues. The emphasis on gathering together under a shared belief continues. This emphasis is certainly important as all believers, then and now, 
need to be strengthened in their faith through the hearing, reading, understanding, and application of the truth. So Peter himself would write in 2 Peter, but grow in the grace of grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we went over Acts chapter 2, it seems like eons ago, Pastor Chuck exhorted us in the midst of pandemic that we would continue to devote ourselves to good teaching, even if all we could do is to read one page of our Bible a day. He also exhorted those with more free time on their hands that they would use it to think and to ponder the depths of the Word of God. And here we are, day 105, I lost track, 105, I think, of our pandemic. What have we done with our time? What are our rhythms of life? Have we devoted ourselves to the teaching? Have we used our extra time to ponder the depths of the Word of God? It's difficult to do in the midst of upheaval and chaos. I would urge you to think about what are your rhythms? It's not too late to to change them. But even as we think about changing and digging in deep, let's not do it out of guilt or peer pressure. Let's be reminded of the goodness that comes of knowing deeply the Word of God. Be reminded of Psalm 1 and what, what the psalmist there says is, happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaves do not wither. Brothers and sisters, as we devote ourselves to teaching and reading of Scripture, let's be mindful also of our commitment to our local church. Continue being involved in each other's lives and speaking truth to one another. This includes joining in however we can and our age of social distancing, to learn more about God's Word together, and to encourage one another to press into the reality of the finished work of Christ. I pray that as we do so, that God would use those efforts to mature us, to transform us, to shape our hearts, to chip away at sin, and cause us to wait expectantly for the day when Christ himself returns to finish the work that he has begun. Church, I'll be honest, and admit that I'm thinking about devoting myself to the teaching and reading of God's Word. I, it's honestly just a drag. Right? And sometimes I recognize that it's simply my pride in thinking that I already know this. And knowing how sin works, I'm sure many of you feel that as well. I was convicted of this recently as I was reading an article by a pastor online. And as I read some of this to you, and as you consider devoting yourselves to the Word, I hope these words will be helpful for you. And he writes, You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never graduate to a course where the gospel should not be the center of the curriculum. There's no post-gospel graduate school in the Christian life. 
The center of every ongoing growth in knowledge has Christ crucified, risen, received by faith alone like a child at the center of the curriculum. And I don't presume everybody listening this morning, whether here or online, that you have placed your trust in the gospel of Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to think about this here for a moment. We've been talking about maturing and other words we could use is transformation. I know the common words we see all is like, you've got to remake yourself, right? I just want you to know the only way for any of this transformation, to have lasting transformation and change, and to be able to remake yourself, it's only through the gospel that you can do that. You can try all you want to remake yourself, to transform yourself by your own power, but it's not going to last. And I would urge you to know that the source of real change is here. By the power of God in the gospel, it all starts with being made right with God, trusting that Jesus both made the sacrifice for your sin and rose again so that you could have this abundant new life. And if this piques your interest, sounds attractive to you, I would just ask you to chat with somebody afterwards, outside on the patio, six feet away from somebody else, or if you're online, text in. Now we move into the last portion of our text this morning. And that's in verses 27 to 30. In 27 to 30, we read that prophets make a trek from Jerusalem to Antioch on different occasions. One of those prophets who made the trip is named Agabus, whom Luke records as relaying a message that there would be a great famine that would take place all over the world. And note, upon hearing this news... There isn't a scramble to pack out their bunkers with toilet paper. Right? Rather, the reaction of the Antioch believers is that they all decide to send aid to their sister church, to their brothers in Judea. You might recall that I used the word magnanimous to describe this local church here being built. And again, yes, I used a thesaurus. I was looking for an M, all right? I, I admit that. Use your thesaurus and dictionaries. They're helpful. But this word, magnanimous, is actually quite fitting for the believers, for this church here in Antioch. The word magnanimous is in reference to a character trait. A trait where one has, quote, an elevation or dignity of soul that makes him delight in acts of benevolence, which makes him disdain injustice and prompts him to sacrifice personal ease, interest, and safety for the accomplishment of useful and noble objects. In this situation, the Antioch believers have grown and matured so much in Christ, so much so that instead of seeking their own personal comfort and safety, they have sought out the good of their sister church in Judea. And as we read this, remember how improbable this is. The Gentiles sending relief to the Jewish brethren, the same Jewish brethren, many of whom had some questions about the Gentiles being included. 
This giving of an offering is, a, is the fruit of the result of the change that is taking place in the lives of these believers and showing evidence of their belief and falling in line with the generosity that has been on display in the lives of other believers throughout the book of Acts. If we look carefully, not only were they willing to give freely of their finances and resources to a church that is unlike them, they're also willing to send their leaders off with this offering. In church, it's been encouraging to hear how we here at Church on Mill have served others, cared for those in need, and given of our finances during this pandemic. I'm greatly encouraged that the Lord has grown you in those ways and that the Lord uses you in those ways. It really is great to see that the example that we witness here in Acts of the believer's generosity and of their love is something that we follow today as well as we seek, out, seek to live out the gospel. And I say that because personally I have much to learn about generosity and loving and serving others. And I would urge you to not stop doing those things. And I would actually urge you to think about going beyond our local borders and continue the generosity by giving to the partnerships that we have all over the world. That's the example we see here that the Antiochian church is thinking outside of their own circles. I would urge you to not forget the gospel partners we have in Europe and Southeast Asia and even partners that you might know personally who are spreading the good news throughout the world. And as we wrap up this morning, this afternoon, this morning, I want to return our attention to verse 26. We see here that the believers in Antioch have been given the label of Christian. And almost certainly this term, meaning little Christ, was not used in a positive sense, but rather as a way for others to scoff at them. But even as others today would ridicule those who have become followers of Jesus, this term represents something amazing. Isn't it great that the change in the lives of these people granted by the grace of God would lead to such recognition? A recognition that this group of people is not simply some sort of offshoot of Judaism, but something radical. A multi-ethnic group of people who are now multiplying rapidly, who are united and following the example of Jesus, who are maturing, learning, and growing in their knowledge of Him. And this growth that even results in wonderful acts of good, sharing resources with those in need, and showing that no borders, no barriers can stop the triumph of the Word of God. And this multi-ethnic, multiplying, maturing, and magnanimous group of people needed a new name. And that name was Christian. So for you today, Christian, what is it about you that would lead someone to say, wow, you're different? What is it that would lead people to say that you are a little Christ? I pray that it would not simply be because of some sort of political affiliation you possess, 
or because it's due to the holidays that you celebrate throughout the year. I pray that it wouldn't be because you just disappear for two hours at a time on a Sunday morning to go someplace to hang out with some people. But rather, Christian, may the title that you possess be something radical. May it be a reflection of the love of the gospel that you cannot help but to share, including those who are different than you. That's how a multi-ethnic church is built. May it be a reflection of your deep love for the truth of the Word of God. May it be a reflection of your commitment to seeing others mature and and transformed by the Word of God. It may be a reflection of our magnanimity, our desire to be generous to others, to serve, and to love, even if it would mean an inconvenience to us. And non-Christians, those who have not believed and repented of their sins and put their faith in the work the Lord Jesus has accomplished, I pray that you would see Christians as something different than what you see on social media or the news. I pray that you see us simply as broken people, but people sustained and changed by the grace of God. People that are seeking to love Him and to love others. And I pray that you, see, you would see a deep need for the grace of God in your life as well. In Church on Mill, I pray that the qualities we see of this church in Antioch, this multi-ethnic, multiplying and maturing group of people, Let's pray that those same qualities reflected there would be true of us here locally and globally for the glory of God. Let's pray. And Father, we just give you glory and praise because you are the one that has freed us. You are the one that has saved us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the grace that you have given to us. Father, we thank you for your word as well. We simply pray that, God, you would help us obey, help us adhere to your word, for it is good, and that we would do so for your glory, and that through, through us, through this little outpost here in Tempe, Arizona, that your name would be made known. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.